The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 16th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. For every 703 people in County Meath, there is just one Garda. County Meath has fewer Gardaí than any other county in Ireland. Is it because there are less problems in County Meath than in any other county? Well, Jim Fain says, no, that's not the case. And County Meath needs more Gardaí. Meath East TD, Darren O'Rourke, wants the issue to be addressed urgently and says communities are concerned by the failure of the government and the local Fine Gael TD, Helen McEntee, who, as you know, is the Minister for Justice, for failing to deliver safe policing levels. Darren O'Rourke is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Before we talk about where responsibility lies with all of this. Maybe you could put it into context in terms of policing levels in other counties around the country. County Mead obviously the lowest with one Garda for every 703 people in the county. How does that compare? Well, we're the, as you say, Michael, the the lowest on the list. Um, So, for example, County Waterford is at the top top of the list and they have 296 Gardaí per 100,000 people. So Mead has less than half of that. So you can see um, the, the scale there. And, and to your point, um, within the range of, of, of numbers there, and you go through West Mead, for example, uh, has, and, and it's part of the same division, um, 245 uh, Gardaí, but its population is a fraction of Meath's uh, Mead population of 220,000 uh, and West Meath's population of 96,000. Um, Limerick has 278 officers per 100,000. Um, Galway has uh, 220 per 100,000. So you can see just the, the type of, of range there. And, mm. and actually, if you look at it, there's, you know, and that's that's a problem that there isn't that particular pattern. You know, so why would County Waterford be at the top of the list? Why would County Mead be at the bottom of the list? Um, uh, is it, you know, the the, the, the most uh, rational and reasonable allocation of resources is based on uh, pattern of crime, based on population, based on demand, based on you know, rurality versus yeah. versus urban, and you don't see any of that in it. So, so like like many things in terms of resource allocation in Ireland, um, there isn't uh, an objective criteria that applies. It seems to be the case, and I suspect it is the case that you know there's a historical pattern of allocation, and uh, that combined with you know he he or she who who shouts loudest, and time and time again. Mm. Um, Mead comes out the bottom of the list in, in, in those types of allocations. So we see it in terms of Gardaí, we see it in terms of general practitioners, we see it in terms of local government funding. Okay. And I can accept that population isn't the be-all and end-all in terms of where you might allocate your Gardaí, 
but it, it certainly is a factor um, and, an, and an important factor. Okay, but you, you don't know. Uh, you suspect uh, that uh, it's for traditional reasons, uh, but you don't know uh, what the reason for the allocation uh, the shortage in the number of Gardaí allocated to County Meath compared to elsewhere is. Uh, you don't know if it's uh, for any of the reasons that you mentioned, the level of crime, rural, urban, all of these things uh, that must be taken into consideration when Gardaí are deployed. Well, well, one thing I can say for sure, at, at, at the root of this um, is a recruitment and retention crisis in, on Garda Síochána. That is a, a fundamental challenge here. So ultimately, there are not enough guards across the state. No division, I, 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 I can assume, uh, is, is adequately resourced. Probably, so might... probably right, but that really doesn't have any influence or any bearing on how many Garda are deployed to County Meath, does it? No, no, but uh, it is acknowledged. Um, I know it's accepted and acknowledged because I sit on the Joint Policing Committee and the, the chief super in the area recognises it as a challenge, recognises it as an issue and is, is fighting for increased resources. It's, it's, it's acknowledged and recognised by the Minister as well that there is a shortage of Gardaí in County Mead. The question for me, uh, for the community, for those of us in the political opposition, those of us who don't have our uh, hands on the levers of power and influence in relation to these decisions is how do you go about addressing it? Now, if the overall pool of Gardaí is, uh, uh, isn't sufficient, well then there isn't enough of the pie to go around and everybody is, is, is mm. arguing their, their, their toss. Uh, but um, ultimately, we need to address that recruitment and retention crisis in the Gardaí, and we need to ensure that the allocation of resources is done on, on a fair and equitable basis and that it's done on some objective criteria. OK, but you've issued a, a statement uh, in which you say uh, that the responsibility for this lies with the government and the minister, Helen McEntee. Uh, so if Sinn Féin were in government, uh, how would you approach it? Yeah, well, I think, and it's not just Sinn Féin saying in relation to this, I think that's that's important to say. We, we, we are in an unprecedented situation where the GRA um, have have um, issued a motion. No not problem. about County Mead. No, in the Garda Commissioner and, and over, mm. the overall shape of, of Garda Síochána mm. and it has implications in, in County Mead and elsewhere. We also have, and, and they have said, that they're worried about Garda recruitment. Yeah, um, but not specifically uh, in County Mead. That's no, no, but it, a but it national problem. But it, it, it has implications in Leitrim. It has implications everywhere. Uh, but uh, you've put the blame squarely at the feet of Helen McEntee as the Minister with Responsibility for Justice and with the government of the day. So how would a, a Sinn Féin government address the policing shortage in County Meath? So, so, so well, just to make the point, Michael, for the, the, it's not just Sinn Féin. The GRA have said they're, they're worried about recruitment. About recruitment, but not in County Mead. My question is specifically about County Mead, as is your statement, which yeah. criticises the Minister and the Government for a shortage of police in County Mead. How would Sinn Féin address that problem? Well, we would address the recruitment and retention crisis that is absolutely apparent in Ongarda Síochána. The AGSI said mm. that... Uh, but would that not still result in the same situation where 
Uh, instead of uh, one Garda for every 703 people in County Mead, you might have one Garda for every 600 people in County Mead, but you still have fewer Garda in County Mead than any other county in the country. Uh, I take it uh, what you're saying is that there should be a similar amount and that County Mead shouldn't be at the bottom of the list. So how would you bring County Mead up the list in terms of policing numbers? Yeah, so, by addressing the recruitment and retention crisis in Angarda Siakana, and not just Sinn Féin, but the GRA, the AGSI, have said that there is a recruitment and retention crisis in Angarda Siakana, that successive ministers, including this minister and this mm. government, have missed repeatedly, not my words, their words, yeah. they have missed repeatedly the, the trends in relation to recruitment and retention. So what would we do? We would look at um, the, the root causes of, the, of that recruitment and retention crisis. So wh- where is it likely to be? First of all, we would, what, what we would do is, and I and would recommend the minister do this, is talk to Angarda Siakana, listen to the members, talk to those members who are resigning in unprecedented numbers. Um, I think in the first quarter of this year, 37 Gardaí. Mm. That would be 150 Gardaí per year if, if it continued that trend. OK, but I'm sure the minister would say that she's talking to the Garda and the Garda representatives. Well, and the Garda representatives are saying she is not yeah. listening. Well, they, they are not listening. Well, uh, they are not responding. I, I take it you're saying that Sinn Féin would listen and you would respond and you would solve that problem. But would that change... The fact that there are fewer Gardaí in County Meath than elsewhere, or how would you go about changing that fact? Well, well, and, and, and let's be clear. So, uh, at the outset, we said, like, like in all of these things, and it isn't just a case of, of us looking and saying, well, where is Meath at the bottom of the list? I said it relates not just to Gardaí, but to other areas. Of course, in every list of Gardaí per head of population, somebody is going to be at the top and somebody is going to be at the, pol- at the bottom. Mm. That is reasonable. What isn't reasonable is that we don't have an objective criteria for resource allocation. How do you know? How do you know? Because we have asked, because we have specifically asked in relation to that. And and what what we have been told is... It isn't just a case of population, and I accept that. But yes. if it isn't mm. just a, a case of population, what is the objective criteria? What is the objective? And, and, and I can see, Michael, um, you know, at, at the root of this, like the, the, the fundamental problem for me uh, isn't the, the 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 numbers per head of population. Mm. It's the Garda numbers. Uh, for, for the service that's been provided, or more importantly, the service that's not been provided. So. So we don't have enough guards and means. Okay, but this has nothing to do with the minister or the government, does it? I mean, the overall recruitment, the the failure to recruit uh, nationally, uh, I I suppose uh, you could argue is their responsibility. But deploying the numbers of Gardaí who have been recruited has nothing to do with the minister or the government. That is the sole responsibility of the Garda commissioner. Yeah, it's, it's an operational matter for, for, for on, on Gardaí Econ, and I accept that, but I, I, I do... Would you change I, that? Oh, I'm not sure if the line <laughs> dropped out on us there. Uh, we'll try to get uh, Darren O'Rourke back on the line, uh, because that was the pertinent point of uh, the conversation, as to whether the Garda Commissioner should decide how many police officers are deployed to any one county. County Meath uh, obviously has the lowest number of Gardaí in uh, the country, and I suppose we've all known that for some time, uh, but it's not the Minister who decides who goes where. It's not the Government who decides 
decides who goes where or how many Gardaí goes to each county. That's decided by the government so or by the commissioner, the Garda commissioner, Drew Harris. Uh, and the question then is, should that decision be made by the Garda commissioner? I'm told we have uh, Darren O'Rourke back on the line. Apologies to you. I'm not sure what uh, caused the drop out there, but thanks for coming back to us. Uh, would you change that decision, that that that, that position, that the decision on how Gardaí are deployed and in what numbers they are deployed, uh, it, it, that that decision is the sole responsibility of the Guard Commissioner. Would you change that? No, I, I wouldn't change that, but I would make it transparent. I would ensure that there is, there, there is transparency and fairness within that system. That's all we're asking for, is transparency and fairness. That's an objective criteria that apply, that whether it's in terms of, of responding to uh, crime rates or population or urban or rural, whatever, that, that, that there's an objective criteria that apply and that there is fairness in the system and, and equity in the system. But fundamentally, and this is where the responsibility for, for, for the minister. Well, that sounds and like you don't have all. trust in the commissioner, though. No, no. It, it, the, the difficulty for the commissioner, the, dif- the, the difficulty for, for uh, the chief super in, in, in County Mead mm. is that there aren't enough recruits. There aren't enough people coming through the system. For, so, for example, mm. the, the ambition, the target, the stated target by the government was that 15,000 sworn Gardaí by 2024 to recruit 1,000 Gardaí and swear them in this year. Mm. We will barely hit... 600 this year. But it's the commissioner who'll decide where the 600 goes and if he sends them all to Dublin and none to Meath, well that's his his decision. Uh, And if you're not happy with how he's making decisions uh, it certainly begs the question do you have confidence in Drew Harris? I, I, I want objective criteria in relation to it. If, if they exist, let's, let's see them. But, but the issue, Michael, is recruitment and retention. And the government have a, ultimately the government have a, a key responsibility in terms of the pay and conditions, the, the career progression. But you're not saying whether, you'll have, whether you have confidence in Drew Harris uh, to make that decision. I, I, I have confidence in, in Drew Harris to make, make that decision based on the resources available to him, but the, the minister and the government are central in terms of ensuring that the recruitment numbers are sufficient. 1,000 mm. Gardaí were due to be recruited and this you, year. And, and, and just to be clear, when, when you say you have confidence in Drew Harris to make that decision, uh, you think it would be wrong for Helen McEntee to interfere, to intervene, I, to uh, direct I've Drew Harris? I've never suggested that, Michael. Just to be just well, your statement clear. says that Minister McEntee and the government uh, are failing to deliver safe policing levels in, yeah, in County Mead, yeah, based based on the fact that there's fewer Gardaí in County Mead than in any no, other. No, 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 no. I am saying they are failing to deliver safe safe uh, policing levels because there aren't enough police. Gardaí in County Mead. The same can be said right around the country because we have less than 14,000 Gardaí. The ambition, the, the, the necessary requirement is, is to have 15,000 and we need to come to the root cause of that. Why is that the case? Why are we having more resignations than, than ever before? Why are we failing to recruit Gardaí? Why are we failing to retain Gardaí? The, the Gardaí themselves mm. said that the minister, the government, 
the, uh, uh, have failed repeatedly to address the, those those trends. And that's where I lay the responsibility, Michael. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Mead East, Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the latest report in uh, to the RTE payments uh, scandal is uh, to be published uh, today. Uh, this um, Grant Thornton uh, report has already been leaked uh, to two national newspapers. Uh, the headline in the Irish Times is RTE pay report puts focus on Deloitte's role in Tuberty affair, while the Irish Independent say Tuberty's uh, pay uh, was made in a way that RTE ignored its own payroll system to understate its star presenter's pay. Let's speak to Imelda Munster, who's a local Sinn Féin TD and a member of the Public Accounts Committee and also the Oireachtas Committee on Media. Good morning to you, Imelda. Thanks uh, for joining us. What do you make of what you've been reading in the newspapers this morning? Well, firstly, um, from what I understand, the Minister got sight of the report last night and both committees would be looking to be furnished with the report as soon as possible. Um, but it's, there's still, you know, the, the fact that they had said that RTE had understated the, the figures um, for Ryan Tuberty, the, the, his salary figures for 2017 mm. and 2019, um, we need to know, given the fact that RTE's top earners' salaries are published two years after, so in 2021, RTE published those figures, knowing full well that Ryan Tuberty had waived that bonus payment. And they still went ahead two years later and published the figures deducting that um, bonus yeah. payment. Mm. They took, and the question uh, is... It's €120,000. Uh, yeah. they, they took €50,000 off his earnings one year to bring it down under a half a million, the same another year yeah. and 20000 So it looked on the surface of things that Ryan Turbity was earning less than half a million euro. Yes, and I mean, we won't know till we see the report, but your first instinct is to think that they did that to show that there were pay cuts you know, the additional pay cuts being taken. And the question is now, given that they ignore their own payroll system and knew that the amounts that were over 500,000 in 2017, 2018, 2019 were actually paid and went through the the salary process, Mm. who actually gave the go-ahead for those understated figures. Well, it was in from the That's reports this morning that it, it was the financial controller with the approval of the auditors Deloitte, uh, which uh, said in writing that they were happy with how this was being done uh, because RTA would have owed the €120,000 to Ryan Turberty, except that he waived that fee and then they deducted it from what they paid to him. But the point is that those fees are published, those top 10 earners are published two years after. So Mm. at that stage, they would have known that he had waived the fees, you know, and Mm. that that he was paid over the 500. So the question is, why did they not publish the correct fees for that period? Mm. The 511, the 545 for for 2018 Mm. and 2019. Who decided to do that? And why was that? Was it done to deceive again? Well, it, it seems as though Richard Collins ran it by Deloitte, uh, Richard mm. Collins being the financial controller, uh, and Deloitte said, yeah, that's grand, uh, and that's what they did. 
and that, I mean, that's what I'm taking from uh, the Irish Independent, the Irish uh, Times uh, this morning. If that's a correct interpretation of what happened, uh, what does that say to you? Well, it says that when Richard Collins was in and he was pleading, I know nothing, I know nothing. And then he was saying it was um, some error in accountants in accountancy. I just forget his exact mm. term or phrase. But, I mean, he, he was, it's clear he wasn't forthright and explained exactly what it was and why that decision was taken when he knew that Ryan Tuberty's salary was over and above the 500 for those three, three years, that he had since then waived the 120 bonus payment and that the figures that were published in 2021 were actually understated. Why did he allow that to happen? Because uh, he ran it by Deloitte. They said that'll be okay from our perspective. And uh, they said that that was on the basis that 2017, the financial year uh, 2017 and 2018 had not yet been closed and they could live with that uh, from an accounting perspective. But but that's not transparency. Mm. Transparent, being transparent, that's not, you know, proper accountancy. And again... But is that a question for Deloitte as well as Richard well, Collins, as well yes, as for RTE? It would pose a question as to why they said that that was OK to go ahead with that. But at the end of the day, and it's always been the case, that the, the buck stops with the executive board and the chief financial officer. He's, the buck stops with him. He, whether Deloitte said that or not, if he knew that that, wasn't, that was incorrect accountancy, then he should have said, no, but we know that's not correct. Mm. You know, instead of playing playing the game, I know nothing when he was before the committee for the hearings. Mm. It's totally unacceptable. Okay, but, to- but to be devil's advocate, uh, I think the argument here is that they were to pay Ryan Tuberty €120,000 and then they weren't to pay that money to him because he waived that fee. So then they said that we can claw back the 120000 that we're not spending, that we expected to spend by saying uh, that we paid him less uh, to the tune of that 120000 over the three years in question. But they didn't. That's the issue. They didn't. Mm. And and apparently, too, I'd read in one of the reports this morning that um, the, that Tuberty's agent, Noel Kelly, had actually contacted RTE to say that he was waiving that bonus payment. And there was another issue that RTE had previously told us that um, that payment would only be paid if extra work was done. And apparently now it, it transpires that that it wasn't dependent on him carrying out additional duties. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's still as many questions, and that's before you even get to the the separate commercial deal and the 225,000. But when you think about it, they actually put that through what we've learned so far this mo- this morning and yesterday mm. about the understating of the payments. But they were alongside that, they were also doing a separate um, payment deal that they negotiated, um, separate separate commercial deal, mm. should I say, mm. that they negotiated, the they winner. processed yeah. it, they mm. paid it, and they hid those payments through the barter account. Mm. Mm. Which uh, Grant Horton is saying that uh, they shouldn't have done that. That's that uh, deal with Renault, the €75,000 a year, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. that was mm. seventy five over the three yeah. years. Yeah. And yeah. they also say uh, that Ryan Turbidy isn't responsible for uh, this €120,000 that was paid to him over the three years and distorted uh, the salary uh, in terms of, of what the public was being told in terms of what RTE published. Uh, but we're reading uh, two reports uh, from two national newspapers uh, because... 
uh, we haven't seen the actual report which runs to 70 pages uh, and uh, I, I don't know uh, but I, I think uh, there has to be a health warning with what we've learned about this report mm-hmm. at this stage because journalists are being briefed to what end we don't know yet yeah that's it and um, we're not until we actually see the report and go through it with a fine tooth comb. We won't actually know the ins and outs of everything. But there's all there's that report, and we're also waiting on the forensic accountant um, that's focusing on the barter accounts and other off balance accounts, if there are any off balance sheet accounts. Um, and we're but we're also waiting on PAC is waiting on another fifty documents that we requested during our hearing. That's documents. the public accounts committee. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like. Um, minutes from key meetings um, exit packages from executives that were allowed to step away during in the midst mm. of the chaos you know the barter accounts the separate um, commercial deals and the underwriting of those were still waiting on all of that information and we're still also waiting I know it's according to Kevin Backhurst it's in progress but we're waiting to see the register of interest that he has said he will introduce that will show all the private work done by RTE stars outside of their RTE work. Okay, and that's the so Director General of, of RTE, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're waiting on all that information still. But it's important that we have all those documentations. I mean, RTE mm. are due into the Public Accounts Committee in September, and we want those documents before that hearing and not at the 11th hour before the committee has happened the last time to make sure that we can have plenty of time to go through it all yeah. and that we, you know, adequately prepare for it, I suppose. If things keep going uh, the way they are at uh, the moment, uh, you'd expect RTE to have lost between 8 and 10 million by the time uh, they come before you in September, at uh, the end of the year, around 50 million because they're losing around a million euro a week because people have yeah. stopped renewing their TV licence or they're not buying one uh, if uh, they need a new one. Um, should people pay for their TV licence? Well, look, it is is the law of the land. But given what we've heard, right, and given that the fact that you're in a... And it is a public broadcaster, and we do need public broadcasting. But given what we've seen and the the lack of transparency and the underhand deals and the hiding of, you know, funnelling money through barter accounts that they knew they shouldn't have been doing you can understand people's anger and you can understand the lack of trust um, and confidence that people have and actually utter disappointment um, so if i suppose if rte is a public broadcaster is to recover in any way from this scandal that, that people want to see those responsible held to account and we need to see what um rigid practices and uh, procedures are put in place to mm. ensure that something this can never happen again um, and I suspect a lot of people are holding off till they get till they see that and mm. so it's up to RTE okay they have to be diligent I and know but it's not like your motor tax it's not like your motor tax is it uh, correct me if I'm wrong but if your TV licence was due in June and you don't pay it till November uh, there's a few months missing there uh, and that money can't be clawed back well, it's backdated, I think. Oh, is it? I think okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's from when it last expires. Right. So if yours was due the end of June for renewal and you didn't, you went in in October, yeah. mm. it would be backdated to June, to the best of my knowledge anyway. Um, that's that's the way it works. Mm. So, But people are going would, to pay it one way or another, whether they actually pay for their TV licence or not. 
RTE is going to survive, they will be bailed out uh, and the money is going to come from people uh, whether they have paid for their TV licence or not. Well, we're going to have to wait and see. I mean, any government that agrees any mechanism of funding before we see rigid procedures put in place to make sure that this never happens again, they're asking for trouble. There has to be accountability or transparency and accountability. And, you know, the onus is on RTE and the government mm. to make sure that that happens because, as I've always said, you know, they come crying poverty all the time and all of this squandering of public monies is going on and the, the underhand, you know, mm. things that they were doing. But, I mean, they're, they're at their weakest point now, RTE, and it's up to them to actually prove that they're putting those procedures in place to make sure nothing like this ever happens again. And mm. it's only when they've cleaned up their act, I suppose, and that's what they need to do. They need to clean up their act and they need to do it pretty swiftly because it's, it, well, swiftly as it's going indeed. on, they're losing yeah. a million a week. Exactly. As it's going on, they're losing a million a and, week. And, so and, it's the onus is on them. And the government would agree with what you've said, but the government cannot let RTE collapse and it will have to bail out RTE if it gets to that stage, will it not? Well, I mean... I, I don't know is the honest answer yet, Mike. I would be of the firm opinion now, whether you say this is simplistic or not, I don't know. But I would be of the firm opinion that you've proved that you've cleaned up your act, that there's mechanisms, mechanisms in place that this can never happen again. And only then can you be trusted to be in receipt of public funding or additional public funding if that's what they need. But the government needn't even think of increasing the cost of the licence fee because we'll certainly not be supporting that at a time when workers and families are struggling. You know, so mm. um, whatever way they have to fund them, but they can't actually do it until RTE have proven that they've cleaned up their act, that those sort of things can never happen again, that their, their accountancy is transparent, that people are held accountable and that people can eventually restore trust and confidence in our public broadcaster. Okay, Melda, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you indeed. Uh, Melda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud, and East Mead is a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee and indeed uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we were talking with uh, the AA yesterday uh, about uh, how driving testers are said to be rude at times uh, and indeed about learning to drive and all that goes with that. Thanks to Eugene, who's a driving instructor who got in touch. And he tells us he often does pre-test lessons with his students. And he says it's surprising the amount of learner drivers who complete a pre-test. They're fully convinced they would have passed, but in reality, they'd have racked up numerous faults uh, resulting in a fail. Marks for coasting, overclutching, being in the wrong position on the road, uh, being in the wrong lane on a roundabout, etc. etc. The list goes on and some of the ones uh, that seem to catch people out are of huge surprise. He says they seem genuinely surprised uh, because uh, some of the things they do count as a fault. They don't understand though that there's lots of small actions marked by the tester that can add up to a fail. They seem to uh, have uh, been under the impression that it's a major error that will 
ultimately cost you the test, whether you pass or fail. He also doesn't buy into the idea of bad habits and says it's more likely to be a case of careless driving. If, for example, you cut someone off on a a roundabout uh, because you're holding a a coffee cup in one hand instead of having both hands on the wheel, that's not a bad habit. habit. It's careless. He he feels uh, that there's an element of sour grapes on the part of some of uh, the learners who failed uh, their test. The testers are not in a position to engage with them on the faults they make. They need to go back to their instructors for that. Thank you, Eugene. Uh, an email that uh, comes to us uh, from Alex Sweeney in Ratoth says, Michael, I'm looking at the photos of 32 young women everywhere. They're all dressed the same. I, I think that must be so that we can decide which of them is the best looking. A bit like the old days when beauty contestants were asked what their vital statistics are. How degrading. Have these women no respect for themselves? They could be brain surgeons. They could be mammies. They could be anything they want to be. But why do they want to be lovely girls? Lovely girls hoping to be the loveliest, the prettiest, the sweetest, the most innocent and polite lovely girl that the fairer sex can produce. The hair, the makeup, the obligatory red dress and the heels are all perfect and all of the lovely girls are set to be ever so polite. To the big man with the big deep Kerry accent, he's so clever and he is so funny. The lovely girls giggle. Oh please, give me a bloody break and let me wake up from this very bad, very sad sexist, completely misogynistic nightmare that should have ended when the 1950s did. I can't wait until the Rose of Tralee is over. I don't mean next Wednesday. I mean, I can't wait until the Rose of Tralee is over forevermore. And I pray that this is the last year ever that this so-called modern-day progressive egalitarian state is subjected to lovely girls giggling, hoping to work with pets, children and the infirm before going on to perform and do something very girly like the good and lovely girls that the men leering over them expect them to be. The Rose of Tralee enforces the stereotypical outdated perception of how men expect women to act and how they expect them to present themselves. She must not be married and she must not have children. And while they might have stopped judging her, yes, judging her in a swimsuit, why do so many people accept such a narrow view of womanhood in a competition that is state-sponsored, that excludes women who do not fit certain criteria and ends up on national television? She must be a she. After all, men don't have what they call vital statistics and she must hold old-fashioned beauty ideals, ideals which I have no doubt contribute to body image issues and reinforce societal pressure for women to conform to a specific standard of of beauty. Why? The answer eludes me and everyone of my generation. What I do know is I won't be watching this sexist tripe and I hope all of your listeners decide not to watch RTE next week. Is this public service television? Is it why we pay our TV licence? Well, as I said, I won't watch RTE next week, but if they don't drop the Rose of Tralee altogether, I won't be buying a TV licence next year or until it is eventually dropped. It is obscene and grotesque. Shame on the girls and the organisers for putting women back in the dark ages. As I say, that's an email that comes to us from Alex Sweeney in Ratoth. Our telephone number, if you want to make comment today, is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, it is uh, becoming a little bit more acceptable to be homophobic in uh, this 
country. This is according uh, to the Taoiseach. Leo Bradker was speaking uh, to the Irish Examiner's Kira Feelings podcast in which he said uh, that both he and his partner, Dr Matt Barrett, were quite public in their relationship for some time, but they've pulled back from that for uh, the moment at least. Uh, Let's uh, talk uh, about uh, that uh, perception now with uh, Paula Fagan who's uh, the CEO with LGBT Ireland. A very good morning to you Paula uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Were you surprised by the Taoiseach's comments? No I'm not surprised Michael. I, I think with the Taoiseach being in the public eye as he is I think Certainly, there has been a rise in in homophobic comments and, and homophobic language, um, and particularly online. So I'm sure that's something that he experiences massively, and anyone in public life that's out, I think, will be experiencing that. Indeed, there were a group of protesters outside of his home at one stage, uh, chanting right. all sorts of horrible homophobic things uh, towards uh, the house where... Uh, as as a, a politician, they may say was fair game, uh, but his partner obviously lived there uh, and not uh, somebody who's in public life. Yeah, exactly, and I don't I, I don't think it's right, and I think people generally don't think it's right to target somebody for who they are. Like obviously, we might disagree with their politics and their decisions, but obviously, to target and 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 be really dehumanising and and um, hateful about who they are, the mm. person, um, is very, very, very distressing, really, and unsettling. Um, I think it's important to say, though, Michael, I, I suppose we're lucky in Ireland that we've had the experience of the marriage equality referendum that it's relatively recently. Um, and I think in that people really, we sh- we saw Ireland is accepting, and we saw the, the general population is very accepting of LGBT mm people in their lives and I think that was a great chance Ireland got the chance to have a national conversation to hear people's stories and then to see couples uh, getting married and and, and settling down and I think there's great I think there you know great acceptance and love and their extended families all across the country and and certainly I'm from Toronto myself and and, you know I my partner and my kids and we're just part and loved by our extended family and I think that's that's what's real and but unfortunately, in recent, in very recent, the last over the last two years, um, there has been more of a, a, an organised campaign by very extreme conservatives and right wing people with right wing beliefs who are trying to to really orchestrate this negativity towards LGBT people, kind of spreading this misinformation, which is what Leo Varadkar is talking about. You know terrible terrible name calling uh, misinformation being used and I'm not going to repeat the kind of slurs that they use No, and there's no need to I mean we all know yeah. what uh, yeah. slurs they use uh, as you put it but you would have thought as you said earlier that that would have been relegated to history because of how attitudes have changed uh, particularly in the last 10 years, certainly over the last 20, 30 years, uh, but particularly in the last 10 years with uh, the equality referendum and people voting in huge numbers for same-sex marriage. Exactly, Michael. And you see that the the figures in Loud are really strong. I think it was something like 68%, so almost 70% of people voted yes. Uh, And so that's what's real, I think. It's Mm. important to hold on to that. And I think it's what we're seeing, you mentioned the library protests, and we're seeing a handful of people 
five or six people, the same people going around different libraries around the country. Mm. But what I suppose what they're doing is they're trying, in a sense, to make it look like it's a grassroots campaign. It's, it's the parents being concerned. But actually, that's when you look into it, it's the same handful of people going around and and, and, and making these really hateful comments and mm. disrupting and, and harassing people. And, and they're the same people that go into pharmacists and, and of course, yeah. harass but, them. But there, there's yeah. nothing unusual about it, uh, whether it's racism or xenophobia. It, it, any kind of bigotry uh, always comes down to a small amount of nutters, generally speaking. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's made up uh, generally, I think, of nutters and evil people. And what percentage uh, that breaks down uh, between uh, those who are bigoted in some way, I don't know. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, most people in this country are not homophobic, quite the opposite. Uh, when you think mm. back to the referendum, 62%. But if you look back at the referendum, and now every school child in the country had rainbow colours on their social media and so on, mm. there is also no doubt, uh, and I'm not sure if you disagree with this, Paula, that it was trendy. Uh, to mm. uh, be pro-sex relations. I'm not sure how to phrase that, but it was trendy. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you'd have to wonder now uh, if it has become trendy to become homophobic. Is that what's going on? Because uh, these are generally online trends uh, and that stuff with the libraries and uh, the um, other places you mentioned there, that, that's to do with uh, transgenders. And there is dreadful transphobia again it mm. comes down to a minority of people, a collection of nutters uh, and evil people, it would seem. Yeah, I think like what we saw in the referendum was really a chance to have a conversation and people started to talk about their experiences and what that helped to do was other people who wouldn't maybe, if you're heterosexual, you haven't had to think about that. So you got a chance to understand a little bit deeper. Oh, OK, I, I don't want my friend or my family member. That's how you felt. I'm sorry. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Great to hear that. I, you know, and people began to understand it in a deeper way. And so that was fantastic. So I think, well, then people began to really show the support and have those rainbow badges and um, I told you were coming out of a bit of a, I would say, dark darkness or, or lack of visibility in Ireland and lack of, of a lot of silence around being LGBT. So that was brilliant. What you see now, I suppose, is then uh, really genuinely people very organised promoting this um, 
negativity and it is taking hold. It's starting starting to seep in to you're starting to see it online and and they're kind of fearful comments, they're negative comments and people are, I suppose it lowers the tone. And then other people begin to say things, I suppose we see it in other areas like racism, it becomes a bit allowed to say more negative things, more hateful things. Mm. So I think there's a real moment in time where we have to be very, we can't be complacent in Ireland. We have to start to really, where possible, call it out, like you're doing, talking about it on the show. Um, And where you hear it in your everyday life, you're saying, well, actually, that's not true or that doesn't sound right to me and I have my cousin who's married to the husband and they're we love them and they're brilliant do you know what I mean so we have to really I just be really careful um, because I think it is starting to spread I think we I know uh, your researcher mentioned the horrible attack on a teenager in Navin um, so we that's what's going to happen it was it's spilling from out from online to offline now and I think that's what we have to be very careful of um, and it really starts I think anyone listening it starts by just challenging those if you hear a kind of homophobic remark if you hear it something a misinformation you just kind of if you can just say well, hold on a second that doesn't make sense to me okay. um, and and then also I just say like people do have questions and, and obviously you mentioned uh, you know, people mightn't have somebody transgender in their life, yeah. so they might have a question about that. People are struggling with that. I, I mean, I think if you're yeah. going to tackle a problem, you need to look at the problem, uh, recognise the problem and be honest about it. And people are struggling with transgenderism and uh, being asked to accept it. We're going to, we're going into uh, the next school term. We're going to have a horrible debate. I, I won't be surprised at all if there's protests at schools. Yeah, and the thing again, Michael, is because uh, people who are trans aren't that visible in Irish society, they are there. Um, and obviously I'm looking, because of the work I do, I know a lot of tra- people who are trans um, and therefore that becomes, you know, you see the real person, you hear about their struggles and you you understand it in a deeper way and you're not in any way afraid of it or you, your questions are answered. But there isn't a huge amount of people who are trans that are out. So I think what I'd say to people, if you have questions, go to a trusted source um, you know think about who that might be there's a lot of organisations like ourselves doing this work for 20 years um, go and, and try and find out the information or certainly you can reach out to us we have a free phone helpline uh, we have a transgender family support line um, there's a great organis- uh, group of mammies uh, for trans rights who are organising to try and speak up for their kids who are feeling mm. really really I suppose struggling now with this um, a lot of negativity. So I think just mm. for people to, to really understand that it's it's real people. Yeah. We got to understand that people have questions, and of course they mm. do. Um, so just to to do so with well, it's a very uh, important point uh, and one that I, I uh, certainly left out when I was talking about bigots uh, that they were nutters uh, or evil. Uh, but uh, it's quite often driven by ignorance and fear from that ignorance. Is it and not understanding something that you don't know anything about? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and we all have that bias. I suppose it's not by. I'm not saying bias in a negative way, but if you haven't someone in your life or you haven't anyone that you know, it becomes quite theoretical, and then you can believe. You might, you know, you might hear somebody speaking very negatively, and you say, "Well, I, actually, I think a little bit that way myself." Mm. So the 
So therefore, I think if you, but you know in your heart, you don't want anyone, you don't believe that, you don't want to be hateful or you don't, you know, so then then you go and I think what I'd say to people is go and try and, and mm. talk to someone who maybe has somebody trans in their life or try and find out some trusted information. Is it becoming more difficult? I'm sorry, Paula, is it becoming more difficult to be gay, lesbian in, in this country? Does the Taoiseach reflect the views of the LGBTQI community in this country that it's becoming a little bit more acceptable to be homophobic again in this country? And are people stepping back as a result of that? I would say, I, I, I'd say, Michael... On the one hand, it's not. I think there's a lot more openness, a lot more acceptance. Um, so that's fantastic. So I think people can are coming out much younger, so they're not like me or <laughs> people we heard about in the referendum who were maybe 20 years coming out. You know what I mean? So that's really positive. Um, and you'll see a lot of families that really accept and love and, and support younger people coming out. So that's a really positive sign, okay? Mm. But yes, I think, and Leo Bradker's in the public eye, so he's getting, it, I would imagine, an awful lot of hate online um, and then in person as well in front of his house and, and you mentioned. So that is more difficult. Certainly, I've been working in this area for 15 years and I wouldn't, the amount of attacks recently would be unheard of in the last 15 years. Um so it is a worrying trend, there's no doubt about that. But I would say to people listening that, like, uh, the, the bigger picture is that it, it is much more accepting. Um, life is much, much better. We have more rights. Um, and I think that's the important message to get out. Okay. And we have to all start to stand up to this because it's, I think the impo- important message for me, and actually I'm starting to understand this, is that people, those people who are, standing outside the libraries are also standing outside pharmacists they're against mm. the vaccines and other oh, other yes. things mm, mm, mm. Okay. so I think even if you might have questions about LGBT I think it's important to stand up for respectful dialogue and, and respect and, and call out hate when we see it Okay Paula nice to talk to you I, I didn't know too, uh, you, you were from Drogheda but I'm sure <laughs> many of your old neighbours were delighted to hear you on the radio this morning oh, and a few cousins I'd say yeah. I'm sure thank you indeed for joining right, us Michael, this morning that's uh, Paula Fagan who's uh, the CEO with LGBT Ireland let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning uh, we had Sharon Intara saying uh, it's gone to the stage uh, where you don't feel safe in Navin anymore day or night the guards are stretched to the limit we need a standalone station built in Johnston and she says it appears to be teenagers that are causing all of the problems who in their right mind would want to be a guard no respect for guards anymore I agree with Darren O'Rourke as nothing has been done countrywide look at what happened in Academy Square 100 people left homeless overnight Uh, where is the government Uh, she wants to know Uh, thank you indeed uh, for that Uh, we'd uh, a text message about the Rose of Tralee uh, following on uh, from uh, the email from Alex. Good morning, Michael. What an obscene email from a small-minded poor man. 
Uh, well, Alex actually didn't say whether he or she was a man or a woman. <laughs> Interesting enough. Uh, anyway, uh, Rose of uh, Tralee is a wonderful worldwide event which is recognised all, all over the world. It's a must watch for me. That's from Alice. Thank you, Alice. A uh, few people in touch about that. Uh, Marion Trim says, whoever wrote that letter about the Rose of Tralee would have no trouble getting a good job in Saudi Arabia or some of them countries, says Mary. Thanks uh, for that, Mary. Uh, I'm not sure I follow the line of logic, but thanks. Uh, Never cancel the Rose of Tralee, says Sean in Dublin 9. How on earth could we not miss the lovely Colleen's saying their first aim would be to achieve world peace? Thanks uh, for that, uh, Sean. Uh, We'd uh, a call then from Noel who says... Alex's email was too harsh. The Rose of Tralee is a fun event. It publicises different areas and businesses and it brings people together from all over the world. It's not about a group of derogatory men. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on that. Uh, and if you'd like to comment, as always, we'd love to hear from you. 0419832000, text or WhatsApp 86 658 a good piece of clean, old-fashioned fun or uh, lovely girls competition that uh, belongs in the 1950s. You can tell us on the phones or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The housing charity threshold has lined up with the Irish Council for International Students and the Union of Students in Ireland to launch the Scam Watch campaign. Uh, this is ahead of uh, the next college term. Let's speak now to John Mark McCafferty, who's uh, the CEO of Threshold. And a very good morning to you, John Mark. Thanks, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. This has become uh, a, an annual problem. Uh, I suppose in the last 20 years, there's some of us uh, who will remember back to the day when students could get accommodation, let alone afford it. Uh, and at worst, uh, they might have been worried about their deposit. Uh, But I'm reading in the papers uh, today of a a Brazilian uh, who paid out €6,000 to a landlord or a supposed landlord for a deposit and a month's rent only to discover 12 other people had the keys uh, and the €6,000 was gone. That's the type of thing uh, that you're trying to warn people of today. Good morning, Michael. Yes, so we are launching a campaign called Scam Watch, um, and at the heart of it is um, a page on the Threshold website of do's and don'ts in relation to being vigilant and aware of scams, particularly at this time of year. As you mentioned, every August it seems to be scamming season, unfortunately, and that's why we need to be out ahead of that and and let people know um, would-be renters, um, students and their parents, looking for accommodation because um, it's bad enough that there's a lack of accommodation, um, a lack of availability and also the cost of of accommodation and and, and, uh, a varied level of quality as well. But on top of that, then you have people, um, unfortunately, who want to um, uh, take advantage of that situation to their own ends and come up with all sorts of of scams. So, Mm. Um, this is um, the, the, in terms of those do's and don'ts, and you mentioned that the case of the uh, of Levi who arrived from Brazil, a, a very very um, tough situation facing not just Levi but also his family members and, and twelve people from from other countries who were scammed, um, being told that they all had keys and given keys for all the same place on the same day, 
and, and by the time they realised what had happened, um, the person who had um, who had scammed them had absconded um, out of the country. Um, and so that, that was a very, very uh, kind of extreme case. Um, but unfortunately, those cases do exist. Um, and Levi is telling his story um, today in relation to um, that scam. Mm. So in terms of those do's and don'ts, uh, Michael, you know, I guess what we're saying is, you know, uh, do inspect the property in person. Um, if you can, do ask for a contract, a written contract, a written agreement, lease agreement. Do use secure payment methods like bank transfers. Um, do report any scams to the guardie. Um, do make use of advice services like Threshold or the International Council for International Students, mm. uh, the Arts Council for International Students, or uh, the Union of Students of Ireland. And be vigilant for ever, ever complex um, or increasingly more complex rental scams. And if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Um, it's probably obvious to people listening uh, not to hand over €6,000 for a, a flat or a place in a house or whatever it is to somebody when you haven't even seen what is allegedly on offer. Uh, that would seem obvious, but uh, we have a very serious problem and people are desperate. Uh, and if uh, this seems like an opportunity at last, you can understand how people are lured in and then exploited like this. Well, people are absolutely desperate. And, you know, in the, even in the case of Levi from Brazil, um, he knew this person, you know, he'd befriended this person, or, or rather he, he felt that he'd got to know this person enough and he'd been staying in a previous place. Um, he thought he'd, he'd enough information on which to kind of um, move into this other place and, and provide the 6000 you know, the, the deposit and the month's rent. But unfortunately, some people are so unscrupulous, they'll try and kind of win your confidence and that's why people have to be vigilant. And I guess, you know, we also, along with the do's on on the Threshold website, we also have a number of don'ts. So don't pay cash in hand. Don't rush headlong into anything. And we are mindful. People are desperate to try and source accommodation. There is a rush on in trying to secure accommodation, especially for students at this time. But it's important not to bow to pressure. Um, and, and often scammers will apply a kind of a time pressure um, and, and put people under pressure to make a decision. Don't share personal information online, especially social media. We, we are in an age where people do bear an awful lot of um, personal information online. And that that is, um, That's a real risk um, because scammers um, pick up on that and, and they can build up a profile and they, they can use that against people who are looking um, to, to secure accommodation. Um, don't ignore any red flags. For example, very low rent. If it's, you know, again, if it's too good to be true, it probably yeah. is. The landlord living abroad. Not all landlords living abroad are not legitimate, but some, but some are. And foreign bank account details. So, if there's a number of red flags coming up for you, and using unsecure payment methods like wire transfers of cryptocurrency, um, we would uh, discourage that because all of these things are signs uh, that there's a very high risk that that what people are being offered is in fact a scam. Are international students all the more vulnerable, do you think? Uh, it would seem as uh, they've fallen uh, victim to these scams more so than other students. One in seven international students uh, out of a, a group of 500 students said that they had been scammed. Yes, yeah, so that's why we're doing this this. Um a partnership with um, the Irish Council for International Students as well as the Union of Students in Ireland because, you know, international students are often more vulnerable and English is usually not the first language. 
and they usually don't have relations or friends they can stay with in the short term while looking for a place to live. So we and, and ICOS and USI were encouraging students to read and heed all the advice in this campaign to look at the do's and don'ts page on, on the threshold website and to contact the various channels provided if they have concerns or queries regarding um, offers of accommodation. Okay, well, it's a word of warning for everybody. Uh, the campaign is the Scam Watch campaign, Don't Fall Victim. John Mark, thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. John Mark McCarthy is uh, the CEO of uh, the housing charity Threshold. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we began the programme today by hearing calls for more Gardaí to be recruited. There's an awful problem recruiting Gardaí. Three Garda recruits or potential recruits uh, were sent home, as I'm sure you've been hearing from Temple Moor because of tattoos. Uh, the Fine Gael MEP, Maria Walsh, says uh, there's a, a, an urgent need for reform and that we shouldn't be wasting time uh, about tattoos. Let's hear a little bit more. Uh, and we're joined now by Maria Walsh. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I, I take it you believe that uh, those uh, three people shouldn't have been sent home from uh, Templemore and that the tattoos should have been ignored. But of course, it is a breach of the dress code uh, and uh, obeying the rules surely is an important part of being a member of Angarda Síochána. Good morning uh, and thank you very much for, for having me on and covering such an important issue. I, I understand the, the, the current or the, the previous historic um, uh, guard the uniform stance in terms of having no visible tattoos around the collar or on the hand. But, you know, to your point made in the introduction of this, we are having issues with recruitment and retention. Uh, in my eyes, we're in a state of uh, emergency, um, both within the Garda Shikana as well as the Defence Forces. If we are going to reach the 800 new recruits by the end of this year, uh, a target set by the Minister of Justice with the Commissioner, um, then we need to also adopt and update our policy uh, around this in order to not, as uh, uh, shared, send three trainees home uh, from Templemore. And bear in mind, these trainees had gone through a rigorous entrance exam, number of interviews, mm. uh, fitness, so didn't just arrive down to Templemore um, without having any sort of uh, a conversation with um, uh, uh, the 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 Garda Trainer College or, or those in recruitment. So, uh, for me and for my understanding, one tattoo was incredibly small behind an ear, which could have been covered up with makeup or a bandaid. Um, and for me, we're in, as I mentioned, we're in a state of emergency. We desperately need to get new recruits into our communities, both urban and rural. Mm. Um, and speaking with a member. Uh, earlier on today in Donegal, only one new recruit came from Templemore up to Donegal. And uh, while it's a fair distance from where, where you're sitting, you know, I, I would let to wonder what other big counties like that, all counties, would have gotten recruits in the last couple of weeks and months. So okay, we, perhaps we that little need to, to see these recruits coming through. Yeah, perhaps the little tattoo above the ear could have been covered. And I'm not sure if that would have been in line with policy. Uh, Tanya Sweeney is writing about this in the Irish Independent today, saying it's time uh, to drop these outdated rules that everybody of her generation uh, has a tattoo or more of them, I, I take it. Uh, but uh, she talks about the Garda information booklet and quotes from it. It says, body art 
tattoos on the face or visible above the collar are not permitted. All other tattoos will be covered at all times while on duty, whether in uniform or plain clothes. Uh, So I take it that the recruits had the information or should have read the booklet uh, uh, if uh, they were surprised that they shouldn't have been, in other words. I mean, I can understand from reading that you wouldn't be surprised. Um, uh, And and no doubt anybody applying for a position would would have done their due diligence prior to that. But it is not reflective of, of, of 2023. I mean, we have nurses, doctors, um, uh, an MEP and myself, former Rose, that has tattoos that are visible, um, and and that's seen as a celebration of telling a story or a lived experience. Yeah, you, you know, it'd be one thing if you've gone through training, uh, and we got these recruits out into the communities that are desperate need of them, um, and then if they went into special forces or needed for their own protection to cover these markings, then that conversation would happen, either be covered by makeup or or a band aid or uh, removed permanently, but. To, to stop them as they're moving into temp more, for me, I see that as a much bigger issue as as we're having this conversation um, and as leaving cert results coming out or young professionals are thinking about changing career and a rewarding career into Angarda Siakana. Mm. You know, I'm left to wonder if I was 10 years younger trying to apply and I have a tattoo, well then I'm not even going to go bother through the process because of these, in my eyes, very outdated uh, policy. So for, for my perspective, it needs to be a policy reform from the commissioner in order to reflect 2023 and ultimately serve the communities which Angarda Shihana are doing and need to do more. We need to see them okay. visible and we need more recruits coming through Templemore. Would, would sergeants or inspectors not have something better to be doing, though, than checking if uh, members of the force had covered up their tattoos every day, I, I take it? I mean, I, I, I would imagine I would imagine any... Uh, uh, any team member or any leader uh, in any position is keeping an eye uh, on their team. So uh, having that conversation and the due diligence of it. But ultimately, the core is getting trainees through Templemore and serving out into the community. Uh, mm. And then it's up to the discretion of, of the acting sergeant or, or leadership within within whatever station that person is serving. But we are in desperate need if we are going to meet uh, the 800 new recruits by by the end of this year, which is a target set by the Minister of Justice and, and the Commissioner. Mm. Uh, I did a, a quick Google before we came on air uh, for offensive symbols and the results <laughs> I found remarkable. Uh, the amount of offensive symbols uh, that are just numbers, for example, uh, that would go over my head if they were tattooed onto somebody's body is unreal. Uh, you could have 100% uh, written on you, which is shorthand for 100% white. Uh, and there's so many white supremacist symbols like that to do uh, with uh, numbers 109 stroke 110. The figure 109 is white supremacist numeric shorthand for the number of countries anti-Semitists claim Jews have been expelled from. Uh, and this is a, a list that goes on for pages and pages and pages uh, before you start to get to the symbols, uh, which God knows what they are. Uh, I mean, it is dangerous territory that you're going into when you allow people to express themselves through tattoos, is it not, when they're policing communities and should be the police force for everybody in that community. Yeah, but Mike, from my understanding, um, and I'm assuming our media would do would have done their own due diligence in ensuring that if these tattoos were offensive symbols, which is what you, you know what you mm. outlined there, mm. then absolutely I can see uh, a, a renege and a return to that trainee back into their uh, back off Temple Moor. I, I, I can appreciate that. 
Mm. Um, but from reading news reports, from seeing and hearing what the commissioner saying and, and the wider audience, um, they weren't offensive. Um, I, I absolutely concur. If uh, the policy reform uh, is, is, is not to the removing of a, a discriminative, but you're creating uh, a, a you're creating a job of work, are you not? I, I mean, it'd be one thing if somebody turned up with a, a swastika. It's straightforward. It's offensive, uh, and I don't think anybody would want to see a member of Angarshia yeah. Connor with a swastika on them. Uh, but what if thirty-eight is written on their hand? Uh, and uh, apparently, this is a, a number for uh, some group who call themselves Hammerskins. It's a racist skinhead group, uh, and probably just as bad as having a swastika on you. Well, I take that point. Uh, but again, back to uh, the, the examples that we are given here, these three trainees, from my understanding in media reports, didn't have anything of discriminative nature. Mm. Um, I, un- I understand, and, and I'm really interested in terms of creating more work. I mean, ultimately, we need trainees to come through to do more work in our rural and urban communities. So mm. um, I, I, I think we might be leaning a little bit more into the United States territory in terms of uh, uh, or, or further afield mm. uh, in terms of uh, offensive symbols. However, if if a trainee or a member of any community group, not just an, a member of Angarda Shikani, has offensive symbols, then af- absolutely that has to be dealt with. But from my understanding, this didn't happen in this case. Uh, and from, from my eyes, it should be the policy is reformed to reflect 2023, uh, taken into the account that no offensive symbols should ever be uh, given. If you look at um, the, the the dress uh, program in terms of the breakdown, um, very inclusive, very um, uh, very uh, updated modern language, um, and it's very clear cut that it is an inclusive uh, organisation. A member uh, on guard the Shiohana, uh, and that wouldn't lean into any offensive symbols being mm. seen. Yeah. On, on trainees. I read about one of the men who apparently is now job hunting. Uh, he had a, a tattoo uh, on his hand of a line, and he said uh, that uh, he got that tattoo uh, to show his daughter's strength, who had recovered from a, a terrible illness. Uh, and I think there's probably an argument on both sides, uh, but uh, does it extend beyond tattoos? As I say, I was reading Tanya Sweeney's article in the Irish Independent today, uh, and she talks uh, about uh, the dress code. Gardaí must not have visible face or neck tattoos. Men's hair is to be short above the ear. Women's hair can be collar length or tied up and tucked away under the hat, never over the eyebrows or the face, with no visible buns or ponytails and definitely no combination of unnatural colours. And then she goes on to talk uh, about beards and the amount of uh, men uh, who have beards, uh, I suppose, uh, these days, uh, who would be prohibited uh, from becoming Gardaí. Uh, is it time to look at all of this and maybe have uh, a force who dress in a way that reflects uh, the community that they're policing? Yeah, and that's simply what I'm, I'm calling for. I mean, that urgent need for policy reform uh, on an overall Rangar, the uniform, which is inclusive of how um, of, of, of how they are. Um, now, I can understand, too, um, in having member, members of my family in Angar the Shivana that uh, certain hair length is a safety precaution. So if they are in uh, any sort of altercation, that um, it's it's uh, it's, it's health and safety for them not to be pulled on. So I can appreciate that, but very different to uh, sending three trainees home from Templemore uh, because of tattoos and to the to the point you just made there where uh, one man had a tattoo in honour of his daughter's um, strength. 
Um, you know, I think we're a far cry from serving our communities uh, in the be- in in my perspective in the best possible way. Uh, when you're sending people home that you know could either cover them up or um, have different conversations once they've come out of and graduated from Templemore and got into the communities, both rural and urban, that we so desperately need them in. Okay, you mentioned uh, the Rose of uh, Tralee. Uh, you're, you were crowned the Rose in 2014. Uh, yeah. somebody, somebody's asking me to ask you about it because we've already had a, a lot of talk on the programme today about uh, the Rose of uh, Tralee with a, an email from Alex complaining that it's sexist, misogynistic, uh, it degrades women, it belongs in the dark ages uh, and it should be outlawed altogether. An awful lot of people responding to us since we read that email saying otherwise and that they uh, think that uh, it's clean fun uh, and gives everybody a, a chance uh, to participate in an age-old tradition. What are your thoughts? Uh, is it a lovely girls' competition or um, would, will you watch it next week? Would you be interested in it at this stage? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I often wonder, and I, I, I get asked this, I'm, I'm nine years uh, nine years ago when I got crowned the International Rose of Tralee, so um, uh, for me, uh, when I hear things like lovely lady competition, I, I often wonder even back then when that became such a negative connotation uh, and, and a bit of a, a, a joke about uh, understanding the Father Ted, Father Tedisms um, that come from that. Uh, for me, it's always disappointing when I hear, uh, and every year you get it around August, um, that people don't see the festival for what it is. Uh, it's a celebration. Oh, <laughs> my God. Uh, it's a celebration of whatever Maria Walsh uh, was about to say, uh, but we've obviously had uh, very different views on it. Uh, thanks uh, to the listener texting saying you should ask uh, Maria Walsh uh, for her view on uh, the uh, rose, given that she's uh, done very well f- from it. It's uh, certainly generated quite a, a lot of conversation here on uh, the programme today. A-, a lovely girls competition, a beauty contest uh, in line with uh, Miss Ireland or Miss World or Miss Universe all those things, uh, the vital statistics and uh, the swimwear competition and all of that. Uh, we have Maria Walsh back on the line. Thanks for coming back to us, uh, Maria. You were, you were about <laughs> to say... Ner- I get a little bit nervous. Uh, either outside anti-Rosatrilly influences were, were, have been cutting me off. <laughs> Very <laughs> good, yeah. Say, okay. I, I must say, you know, I, I can only say... Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be a member of the European Parliament if it wasn't for my experience in the International Rosatrilly. Um, it affords women opportunities uh, to to be celebrated, to share their lived experience. Uh, and unfortunately, and, and taking in, I believe it was Alex's uh, email you mentioned, you know, you people only see two TV nights, see very, very minuscule part of the overall international festival. Mm. Uh, these roses have been um, working in their communities on a Rosa Tree tour for a number of days, um, would, from a business context, because of the festival, bring about 7 million into the North Kerry area every year um, and over a million tuned in at, at home over those two TV nights. So uh, there, there's a lot going on to it while we might hear negative connotations and, and um, a negative critique. Uh, it is certainly something that I hope lives uh, uh, each year and all years. This particular year, I'm aiming to go down Monday and Tuesday night. Most international roses would go down. Uh, each year, as many other roses would too, um, because it really is such uh, such a unique time uh, where women are often the end of jokes. Where this is, they're they're very much at the heart of that leadership and that powerful message that we need to get out that 
all inclusivity is welcome, particularly um, in, in North Kerry and Ireland as a whole. Very good. Very interesting to hear your comments. Thanks uh, for taking that question. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning uh, and being with us on the programme. Maria Walsh is a Fine Gael MEP for the Midlands Northwest constituency. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you have children going into secondary school this year, there's probably an amount of excitement, anticipation, anxiety, and indeed stress in your household. And it's possible that each of those feelings in equal amounts is not a bad thing because it is a huge change in a child's life. And let's hope that uh, they all enjoy uh, going into first year. If you have a child going into sixth class, uh, well, it's all ahead of you, isn't it? Uh, And perhaps uh, you might want to talk to your teacher uh, about uh, the Smart Moves programme from the ISPCC. Let's hear a little bit more about it. Uh, We're joined by Victoria Hosen, who's... uh, the Community Engagement Manager with uh, the ISPCC. And a very good morning to you, Victoria, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. This really is a a huge and a significant change in a child's life, going from, I suppose, the security that they've known in primary school to the very unknown future in secondary school and the people that they're going to be uh, meeting uh, along the way. Uh, And it can cause a lot of anxiety. This Smart Moves programme is aimed at uh, equipping them uh, to deal with all of that when they get to that stage. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, that's exactly it. So when you're moving from primary school into secondary school, there's so many big changes that come with it that even children who already have, um, you know, a bit of resilience or who are kind of looking forward to it can still have a few questions that um, they need answered, you know. And it's one of those things where you're going from a class where you know everybody for the last few years. You only have one teacher and all of a sudden you're going into an environment where there's lots of different teachers, very, you know, big class sizes. Um, Also, you're looking as well as sometimes children who are living in more rural areas who are now moving into um, maybe even a city school, etc. So even things like your mode of transport to mm. your school could also change alongside your actual new routine and as well as all those new faces. So the Smart Moves program is a free teacher-led program um, that includes short lessons covering all those types of topics and more on things like friendship, problem solving, sleep difficulties, um, and then as I said, some of the anxieties that you had mentioned as well. Okay, and uh, it is down to the schools, uh, in other words, and the teachers in the schools uh, to come to you and the ISPCC and sign up to this program, is it? That's it. So registration is free. The whole program is free. You get um, teacher guidebooks, um, student journals, posters, etc. And again, all completely free. And it's just registering with us. Now, I do. I did say it's teacher-led, and that's because we know that the research shows that actually having teachers deliver this program themselves in the classroom works better because they have a stronger relationship with the child, and they also get to see the child on a daily basis. So they can bring mm. in the Smart Moves lessons um, to other parts of the lesson plan, etc. in school. Um, but the teachers can get support from us then. And as well as that, parents and caregivers can get support from us as well um, in relation to their own, you know, maybe anxieties they might have Mm. around this big transition too. Very good. Uh, For the parents uh, who were listening now saying, I wish my child did that last year (laughs) and they're going into first year this year. Can you give us a three minute version? What advice have you got? 
So it's one of those things where it sounds counterintuitive um, when somebody says to you, don't show your anxiety, because we talk so much about how you, it's good to talk. But as a parent, sometimes it's about when your own child comes to you with worries or when you're talking about these life changing elements, these big transitions, you know, trying to have as much kind of positively and confidence that it's going to be okay and it's okay for them to come to you to talk to you about these new changes is so important. That doesn't mean that you're not going to have anxieties yourself and worries. So being before having a conversation like that or before bringing up these topics, it's always good for you as a parent or caregiver to reach out to your own friends, family members mm. or support lines like ourselves to get advice and know what you're supposed to, I suppose, as some of the guidance that you're going to impart to your children and young people as well. So that's one thing that's always you know good to keep in mind is before you have those conversations with your child or young person mm. make sure you're ready for that conversation that you're in a good place um, and it, you know if possible that you can line up those conversations at times when you're anxiety yeah. a little bit low with yourself and I imagine um, every child going into first year is anxious even the most resilient of children have to be anxious because it's an unknown future and we all have a fear of the unknown as I said uh, you may be excited and anxious in equal amounts and that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, and you know, anxiety is one of those things where from an evolutionary standpoint, you need it. If we didn't have anxiety, we wouldn't learn, um, it, you know, just in our mm. environment, things that are dangerous for us. We wouldn't have motivation sometimes to act. So exactly like you said, Michael, sometimes that little bit of anxiety, that's not a bad thing at all. It's that what we talk about is that problematic anxiety when it really doesn't match the scenario. It doesn't match the situation and it's really causing you um, problems. So that's what we kind of really deal with. But exactly like you said that little bit of anxiety is actually completely normal and you kind of you know as you said it's nice sometimes it's that butterfly feeling in your stomach of what's yeah. going to happen and that's, that's again completely normal and expected mm, Okay uh, and uh, for children who are particularly anxious uh, what would you say to the parents uh, in, in trying to get them to a, a stage uh, where they're able for it uh, it can be very very daunting for some children Make the unknown known. That's my biggest. I've worked with parents and caregivers and children with anxiety for a number of years and the Smart Moods program really does delve into this. Children and young people um, don't know what to expect. So that's why those conversations, that's why these types of programs can be so useful because we can help you know what to expect. Mm. Of course, uh, you know, life is unpredictable. There's going to be challenges, and that's what we mean by resilience. Resilience is what you have in how you cope and deal with challenges. Not that challenges are not going to happen. And again, that's another thing to keep in mind that when your child is going into school, you can't promise that everything is going to be perfect and everything's going to be okay. But what you can promise is that whatever comes up, you'll be able to deal with it together. That if there is a problem, you guys can problem solve together, that there are support there. Mm. So that's a really, I think, important concept. It's not to say that everything is going to be okay, that there's not going to be challenges, because there is. That's the realistic thing of it. That's what life is. But Mm. that you actually have somebody there who can support you and there are resources there to help. Uh, And there are resources uh, for most people, other kids uh, who are in school, whether they're siblings or neighbours or cousins or whatever. And uh, just generally tell us about your school life in front of uh, the child who's about to go in. And that, uh, as you say, can take away some of uh, the unknown and they get a feel for what to expect. Exactly. 
exactly. And, you know, sometimes um, schools already have that in place where they have older students talking to the younger students about it, which is brilliant. But if not, having a Smart Moves program in a primary school setting means that you already have those conversations there, especially mm. if I myself was an older child, <laughs> two younger sisters. And uh, so for me and my mom, it was the first time for everything. So when I was going into secondary school, I always say that when I'm working in a program like this now, I really wish there was something like that, that we mm. both would have been able to have that learning a little bit ahead of time. So that's why this program can be helpful um, is to get that again, to just be able to have that conversation ahead Very of good. time. Uh, and p- parents should talk uh, to the school if their children are going into sixth class. Uh, the child line services there, uh, 1-800-66-66-66 every moment of every day of the year. We leave it there for the moment though uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us Victoria. Victoria Hosen, Community Engagement Manager with the ISPCC. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research Chris Murray is in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.